Thank you, Kylie, for reading us God's Word this morning. It's great to be here again with you this morning. It's great to be amongst believers in our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we read that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows for us. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm the assistant minister here at Helensburg and Stanwell Park Anglican Church. And I used to be a science and maths teacher. If you didn't know that about me, you do now. And it was years ago. But I majored in physics, and so I know nothing about rocks. Geology, or more specifically, petrology, I didn't even know that was a word, um, is the study of rocks. I do not know anything about rocks, and even though I studied chemistry in my degree, I am not the person you want to teach you about the periodic table of elements. But I thought, let's start there this morning. Why not? So we're going to start in chapter 54, verse 12, and we're going to learn about some rocks. The first rock is antimony. Antimony is actually a chemical element. And antimony has, it's one of the stupid ones that has the um, symbol SB, standing for antimony. I don't understand it. It also has the atomic number 51. Don't know what that means either. But what is really cool about antimony is that when you grind it into a powder, it actually has a bit of a shine to it, a luster. And so when you add it to things, it actually makes them shine. It's kind of interesting. The second one you may have heard of, it's sapphires. Now, sapphire is a blue stone. It's a blue gem. The third one, agate, you probably haven't heard of, but you will have seen this rock. This is one of these rocks that when it's cut in half, it actually has crystals inside it. And those crystals are usually all different colors. So you will have seen them, and they're usually multicolored crystals inside the rock. And so they're kind of cool, aren't they? Beautiful. And then the third one is carbuncles. Now, you don't know what carbuncles is, but it is a group of rocks that are red. They're red gemstones. So rubies are usually uh, classified as carbuncles. Carbuncles? (laughs) Simon Carbuncle. Anyway, these uh, stones all are precious. And they are used here to explain the city that is built. And it is these, this city has gates and walls that are built out of these gems. And this city is the city that we are looking forward to that is kept in heaven for us. It is our inheritance for us who believe in Jesus Christ. And it is where God will ultimately and completely fulfill his promises. Isaiah reminds his readers how God will fulfill his promises. And that's what we've been looking at in these sermons. And our big questions, the first one we looked at was how can God rescue? The second one was how can God save? And today, we're going to finish this series with the question, how can we know that God is for us? 
And I've said this each week, that the answer to all these questions is that he does it through the suffering servant. And so as I start this morning, I want to think about this question. How can we know that God is for us? And what I'm really wanting you to consider is that when we feel as though God is not for us, how can we know that he is for us? When we feel as though there is no future, when we feel like we are distant from him, when we do not understand his thoughts and his will, or what he is doing in the world, during these times in our life, how can we know that he is for us? How can we be certain that his promises that he has made through the suffering servant, are actually a reality. Because oftentimes it doesn't feel like it. It doesn't seem that he is on our side, and it doesn't seem as though he cares for us. If he does exist, and he promises to comfort us, and he has sent his son to die for us, then why is my experience different to what we see here in this passage? And so as we consider these questions, we need to come to him in prayer. We need to ask him to help us understand his word and how we should apply it to our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have sent your son as the suffering servant to pay the penalty for our sin. And you have allowed us to have a relationship with you. Guide us in your word this morning. We are aware that your thoughts are not our thoughts. So help us as we seek wisdom and insight this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So over the last two weeks, I've done a lot, I've spent a lot of time looking and considering um, how the Old Testament people would interpret this passage in Isaiah. I've wanted us to consider what, is it, what it has meant for them first before jumping in to what it means for us today and how we apply it. But I'm not going to do that today, and it's for this reason. This part of Isaiah is a response to the suffering servant. It does not only concern Israel, because it is a, a, what we can expect Uh, in this passage. It is a response to the suffering servant. It is a vision for us because it includes us as well. Let me explain this further. In chapters 54 and 55, we see a tailpiece to the servant's song. It is Isaiah's vision of what will happen after the servant has fulfilled his work. So, in chapters 52 and 53, we saw that the servant was crushed. The servant is the offering for guilt, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. The chapter that we look at today is Isaiah's vision of what happens after God's servant, Jesus Christ, is being substituted in our place. We live in a time 
after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we should see ourselves as the subject of this part of Isaiah's vision. This is a vision for us. It is a vision of God's salvation, and it is a vision for all generations. And in this passage today, Isaiah focuses on a world that is expecting and experiencing great things because of the work of the suffering servant. We look at this passage, we know the servant by name, and our desire should be to praise God for what he has done and what he is doing in the world. Isaiah wants us to come away confident that the work of the suffering servant is a reality, and we are to sing his praises. Now, there's a lot of imagery used in these two chapters. First of all, we see a barren woman who has not been in labor. She ends up with more children than she can fit in her tent. Read with me starting at 54 verse 1. It says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will, the pe- will people the desolate cities. Isaiah is expecting us to remember, as we read these words, the barren one who was promised many children. So I'd like to turn to Genesis. Would you please turn with me to Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 15. Genesis 17, starting at 15. It says, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. God's promise to Abraham was that through Sarah, a barren woman, he would make a great nation for himself. And that blessing would flow out from that nation. Now, if you're doing the Bible reading plan with uh, Ella this week, you may have heard this same passage from Isaiah chapter 54 being used by Paul in Galatians chapter 4. Paul uses it to explain that we are not children of the slave woman, Hagar, but children of the free woman, Sarah, the barren woman. Paul explains that we are children of Sarah. We are the children of the promise made to Abraham. And here in this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah wants us to recognize that we are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So how can we know that God is for us? 
Well, look around you today. Look around this room and see how God has fulfilled his promise to Abraham. We are it. We are the promise fulfilled. And if the promise to Abraham is that would that many would be made righteous, then it says we need to be prepared for it. Look with me at what it says in verse 2. It says, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. This passage that we're reading right now comes directly after God has crushed his servant. The reason God sent his son is so that people from every nation and every people group would be gathered to him so that they will know what he has done for them. The tent will overflow and the people will be like the stars in the sky. They will be too numerous to count. The servant suffers in order that they may be accounted righteous. And by they, it's not just a few, it says many. But this incredible picture of growth actually stops in verse, at the end of verse 3. And we read in verse 4, read with me, it says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. We jump back actually to the barren woman who is afraid. And God says to her, fear not. Why does he say this? Well, he says it actually for our sake, to reassure us that there is a new order. The old has passed away because the servant has done his work, because he has accomplished God's will. He has established a new covenant. The Israelites and the suffering that they had to experience is no longer the way it will be. And look at me in verse 7. It explains this. It says, For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, my Redeemer. The Lord will act with everlasting love and compassion because of the suffering servant. There is no more anger. His wrath will no longer be seen here on earth. And we know this is the case because of the covenant that God has made with us. And read with me again the passage about Noah. It starts in verse 9. It says, This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you.
just like in the days of Noah, where God promised to never flood the earth again. So now he has sworn to never be angry with us again. He will never rebuke us like he did the Israelites in the Old Testament. Instead of a covenant where God's wrath needs to be dealt with, we now have a covenant where God's anger and wrath has been dealt with. The suffering servant establishes a new covenant of peace and compassion. And in chapter 53, verse 5, which we read last week, it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. God's anger towards his people is satisfied. An everlasting covenant of love and compassion has been attained. And I just think that is the most glorious explanation of how God has made a way for us to be loved and cared for by him. And now the imagery continues. It continues with the foundations of a new city that is being built on precious stones. And here in this text, all the, stone, all the walls and all the gates of the city are made with these precious stones. And everyone who lives within these walls has peace. And if anyone stirs up strife, God says, it is not from him. He has created those who will destroy, but it says no weapon that comes against his people shall succeed. Now note here for a moment, it does not say that people will not stir up strife. And it does not say that weapons will not be fashioned against you. It actually says exactly the opposite. It says that people will stir up strife. And people will make weapons. And they will be fashioned against you. But it clearly states that they are not from God and they will not succeed. And so, it says, do not be worried. But how can we, when it doesn't always feel like that, it doesn't always seem like God is for us? How can we have confidence that he is for us? Well, I believe that the second half of verse 17 is the key to answering this question. So read with me. Uh, Verse 17, 54 verse 17, the second half, it says, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. How do we know that God is for us? Because he calls us servants. In this verse, we see that the word servants, plural, is used. And what's fascinating is this is the first time in Isaiah where the word servants, plural, has been used. Up until this point, the word servant, singular, is used. But the saving work of the servant has created servants. We are now servants. And that means we are now like Christ. And we are partakers in his divine glory. 
And as servants of Christ, we are also called to serve. And Isaiah says that because we are servants of God, we have a heritage. It says, this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Now, the word heritage means inheritance. And this is described above as a beautiful city built built with precious gems. And so we are called servants, and we are to obtain an inheritance because of the suffering servant. And just as Paul has explained that we are children of the barren woman Sarah, here Isaiah explains that we are servants of God because of the servant Jesus Christ. And the fact that we are servants of God is our vindication. And what does vindication mean? It means proof. It is our proof that God is for us. If you want proof that God is for us, if you want proof that he actually is going to achieve his will, well, just look around you in this room today. We are it. We are the proof that Jesus will fulfill his promise. And so when we feel as though God is not for us, we need to read this passage and realize that he has chosen us to be his servants. When we feel like he is distant from us, we need to read this passage and remember that his covenant is a covenant of everlasting love and compassion. And even when we do not understand what he is doing in this world, this passage reminds us that his servants, as, as his servants, we need, to not, we need to not stop sharing the gospel with others. Now, friends, I don't need to tell you that when we focus on ourselves, we see how far short we fall from God's standards. When we focus on ourselves, we lose sight of what God is doing in the world. How can we know that God is for us? We can know he is for us when we actually lift our eyes and see that God is for everyone. As a servant of God, we are not to be concerned about ourselves, but we need to be concerned about those around us, those people we know that do not know about him, do not know what Christ has done on the cross. So do not focus on yourself, but enlarge the size of your tent. Make space for those who are going to come into the family of God because this was the reason why God sent his son and why he crushed his servant so that the nations would be comforted, so that many might know him by name. Now I want you to flip to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 is another vision. I want to start at verse 5. Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, 
It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And flip back in Isaiah 55. Look how Isaiah 55 starts. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Did you notice the vision in Isaiah and the vision in Revelation are the same? God is calling his people to come, come to him. And there is no price. The price has already been paid. And in chapter 55, Isaiah says, Come, everyone who is thirsty. In verse 2, it says, Listen diligently, because in verse 3, it says that he will make an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and sure love for David. What happens as a result of this everlasting covenant that he establishes for us is amazing. Look what happens in verses 55, starting in verse 5. It says, Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. As servants of God, he has glorified us to the point where nations will come to us because they are wanting to know about Jesus. They are wanting to know what he has done through his son, and they will call upon him. The wicked will forsake their ways, and the unrighteous will return to the Lord. God will have compassion on them, and he will abundantly pardon them just as he has abundantly pardoned you. They too will become servants of God. And so this is a call for those who are lost to come to God and be found. The wicked and the unrighteous, he will pardon. He will no longer call them wicked and he will no longer call them righteous. Instead, he will call them servants and he will glorify them. Now think about this for a moment. How unlikely would it be for you to pardon those who have wronged you? And then how much more unlikely is it for you to glorify them. What God does here is contrary to everything that the world does. He does not think like the world thinks. He does not act like the world acts. And it says that in verse 8. It says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. His way is to allow the wicked and the unrighteous to come to him in order that he might have compassion on them and his everlasting love would be on them and he will pardon 
them. God's character is unlike ours. Humanity does not act like this. We defend our position. We demand payment and we demand justice so that we can prove ourselves to be right in front of others. So the idea that God might extend grace to those who are unworthy and to substitute his son in our place for the wicked, it just does not make sense to the world. But in in Jesus, God gives us what we do not deserve. When he crushed his servant, he provides the only way for us to be accounted righteous. This is not the way that humanity would have God act. But his ways are higher than ours. And look at me, what happens uh, with God's word, starting at verse 10. It says, for as the rain and the snow, just like outside comes down, not the snow, but the rain, comes down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It returns to him full and not empty. God's word succeeds always. And so how can we know that God is for us? Well, then he, we know that he is for us because he has sent his word and he promises that it will accomplish the purpose for, what, for which he sent it. In this passage, we see that God's written word and the work of the servant accomplishes and fulfills his purpose. And so we can be confident that God is for us by coming to him when we are thirsty and we have nothing to offer him. We can be confident that God is for us by listening to his word. We can be confident that he is for us by seeking the Lord while he may be found. We can be confident that God is for us by setting our eyes on things above. Now, I'd like you to flip with me to Romans for a few minutes. Romans chapter 15. Here we have Paul writing. Romans chapter 15. I want to start at verse 20. And here Paul shares with us what's at the center of his heart. Romans chapter 15, starting at verse 20. It says, And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written in Isaiah, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never been heard will understand. Paul has prolonged meeting with other Christians because it is his ambition to preach the gospel to those who have never heard about what Jesus Christ has done for them on the cross. He has confidence in the work 
of the gospel because he quotes Isaiah 52, verse 15. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those whom have never heard will understand. And he says, it is my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not already been named, because he understands that the work of the suffering servant is for all people everywhere. And just as it was Paul's ambition to tell others about what Jesus has done, it should be our ambition to tell others about what Jesus has done. God desires that the unrighteous are made righteous. The servant has borne the sins of many and has made intercession for the transgressors. And Isaiah ends chapter 55 by commanding us to go. It says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So to pose the question that I began with, how can we know that God is for us? How can we be certain that God has not abandoned us? Oftentimes, it feels as though he has forgotten us. And in times of weakness and hardship and suffering, it just seems like it is impossible for us to go out in joy and be led forth in peace. How do we do that? And we're going to end. I'm going to read you a great example of how this is done in Acts chapter 5. Flip with me to Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 33. Acts chapter 5, verse 33. Listen to what happens when the high priests hear the gospel preached by the apostles. Starting in verse 33, it says, When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So they wanted to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. To, um, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. But because before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And then after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed were scattered. So in in this present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. 
Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. What does it look like to go out in joy and be led in peace? Well, it does not look like not suffering. It does not look like an easy life. It does not look like having the world accept you. But it does look like faithful, obedient praise and proclamation of the one who was crushed in your place despite the cost. In Isaiah 53, verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I'm going to give you a few minutes to reflect on what was said today. Uh, You may also like to ask a question using slido.com with the hashtag HBSP.